90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Getting ready to go back into the field again, so that's always exciting. Um, I have my biggest class ever, 43 students, so we'll see how that goes this weekend. Yeah, have fun with that. Uh, yeah, 43 students. <laughs> what could go wrong? Nothing. Nothing could go wrong. As I will report <laughs> next week, I'm sure. <laughs> and I'm sure they'll, Absolutely. they'll all make it there on time and everything. It was really great and very validating as an instructor because my TA was in class and he told the horror story. He goes, Dr. Doolin will leave you if you are not on time. <laughs> And I, I had, I had totally forgotten this, but I left three kids like multiple field trips last year, <laughs> and so nice. they, they were all yeah. like, "Oh," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, you're right. I will leave you." <laughs> I mean, of course, you never want to leave students, but it is one of those things where you say you need to be here at six thirty, and six thirty-five rolls around, you got to leave. Ex- exactly. That's exactly what it was. I was like, you know what? Like, we coddle all these kids. Some professors wait twenty minutes, and I was like, no, we're out. <laughs> we actually had a student chasing the van down the street, which we did stop, but that was super funny. <laughs> well, you know, our our intro to field instructor uh, would definitely. Yeah, it was on the dot. We pull out. Yeah, I give three minutes. That's my go-to now. Unless I'm late and then I don't care because I'm never late because I'm in charge. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, what have you been doing fun lately? Uh, you know, shoveling snow. <laughs> Great. It was uh, 70 degrees here this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we had uh, yeah probably five to eight inches or so. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, over last weekend, so doing that. Uh trying to stay warm, working on a proposal uh, that hopefully is going to go in pretty soon. So that's off the plate. So staying busy, unfortunately, doing a lot of other things than writing code, but I think we're about to the end of the paperwork and uh, I can get back to making some awesome software. Oh, the paperwork never ends, John. (laughs) Come on. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Close to a lull in the paperwork. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Uh, I went through a training video though. So we have to do this, uh, this training is when your PIs on a proposal, uh, basically saying, you know, you're personally responsible for the work getting done and so on. Uh, an interesting way to make sure you go through the training and pay attention. There were no quizzes and it wasn't something where, you know, you just had to click through a bunch of slides. It was a video of somebody giving this presentation, but at random points in the video, somebody would voice over random words and you had to write down all of these words and send them in to prove that you'd watch the whole thing. That is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That is amazing. (laughs) I'm totally going to do that for any video, anything that I ever assign. That is so span. That's such a fantastic idea. Yeah, and so, you know, just somebody's talking, and when they change slides, suddenly some voiceover, some person with a deep voice goes, landscaping, <laughs> landscaping, and then it goes on. <laughs> and it makes you want to listen, just because what's going to be next, you know? <laughs> well, these are kind of lame words, but... Yeah, that's too bad. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking using quotes from movies, you know, like, shrubbery. <laughs> That'd be spectacular, too. 
Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I've been up to. But uh, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, I started to peruse all of our listener suggestions, which, you know, we've gone through quite a few of them. I was pretty proud of us that we're actually um, working our way through those archives there. And I found one that was sort of close to what I've been talking to talking about in class. And this is from listener Steve. And he had listened to another podcast, I think. How dare you, Steve? But... <laughs> <laughs> they were talking about zircons and using zircons to date rocks. And so I thought that we could talk about zircons. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> zircons are something that, you know, a lot of times you hear people say, oh, we, we dated with zircon and they go on. How did they do that? And then you forget to go look it up. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, amen. Well, I'm not actually even going to talk about how you do that today. Um, <laughs> that's a whole nother show is what I found out when I finally said, okay, how do you do this? Um, so we're going to basically just, uh, you know, hit the edges of that and talk about zircons and why we'd want to date them in the first place um, and what they can tell us. Because it turns out uh, zircon, is, zircon is a special little mineral. And it tells us a whole lot about where rocks have come from, either the igneous rocks that zircons form in or the sedimentary rocks that they get deposited in. And they're some of the oldest things on the earth. Um, and we will talk a little bit about how we know that. Right. And so zircon is a mineral. And if you want to play the geologist version of animal vegetable mineral... <laughs> Your next question is going to be silicate or non-silicate. Right. Exactly. Um, so zircon is a silicate mineral, and those are the breakdowns of minerals, silicate, non-silicate. And most, you know, silicate minerals make up a ton of the earth. They're like 95% of the crust and maybe a skosh more of the mantle. So saying it's a silicate mineral doesn't really narrow it down. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a silicate like most of the other things. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Are silicate. <laughs> exactly. Um, and in the mineralogist version of that game, uh, you then break down silicates even more, right? Right. Exactly. So silicates are silicate minerals are just a mineral with a various ratio of a cation and then silicon and oxygen. So when we say silicate, we mean silicon oxygen and something else, or just silica and oxygen in the case of, say, quartz, right? Um, but so zircon is an orthosilicate, or a nesosilicate, you could call it that. And so the silicates are broke down based on how those silica tetrahedron, because that's how silica likes to arrange itself, okay, into a tetrahedral shape with silicon in the middle and oxygens all around, um, how do they like to arrange themselves? And so in this case, zircon, this orthosilicate, has an insular silica tetrahedron that's only connected to all these other tetrahedrons by a single cation. And so in zircon's case, those cations are mostly zirconium. And so if I remember the mineralogy right, which I might not, <laughs> but uh, these being insular, that would mean that each silicon has four oxygens of its own. Right, Exactly. That's exactly right. So that silicate, silicon is sitting there in the middle, got all its four oxygens, there's really strong bonds in there, and like I said, connected by this other single cation, in this case zircon, and some other stuff, which we'll get to in a little bit. Right. So they're not being, you know, if the silicons were 
sharing oxygens, then you would have uh, a different structure and much different strength properties and all this other fun stuff as well. Right, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And zircon is actually a pretty nice mineral to look at. It really is. I actually have a zircon ring um, myself, and <laughs> it comes in all different varieties. And so when I think of zircon, I always think of reds. I don't know why. And then it turns out my zircon ring is this really cool blue color. Um, but they come in greens, which is a rarer form of zircon, um, and even clear. Right. And so color is one of the worst indicators of what a mineral is. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, if you talk to somebody that works with zircons, they'll probably tell you, well, zircons are black and white because they look at them on SEM screens. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> right, um, and SEMs don't actually give you that color information. Uh, <laughs> but zircons are really pretty to look at, not just because of their colors, but they're they're sparkly like a diamond. Right. So I love this. Um, I, I actually have a grad student that cuts gemstones now. So I'm, in, I'm into all this gemstone lingo that I didn't even know was out there, right? Um, and so zircons have a high refractive index. And that's the sparkly or in gemstone parlance is the gemstone's brilliance. Um, so how is it, how sparkly is it, right? And so if you have a clear one, it actually gets mistaken for diamond a lot because it is so brilliant or because it has this high refractive index, which just means how, once you cut a gemstone, how light bounces around inside it. Okay. And so in a clear one specifically, you can also see something called fire, which is where that light bouncing around breaks into prismatic colors. And so you've got all these super shiny pieces coming out at you and all these different light waves as well, which some people actually mistake for cubic zirconia too, which has a very similar name, right? Right. So each facet is like the surface of a a prism, a normal prism. The light comes in, it gets refracted such that the colors separate. And then since you have lots of facets, when you cut a gemstone, uh, you get that sort of shimmery, multicolor look that can blind you. Right. Uh. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, you think, oh, it's just a zircon and not a diamond. But to me, zircon's even cooler than diamond for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, it's, it's not as hard. It's only a 7.5 on the Mohs hardness scale as opposed to diamond, which is a 10, of course. Um, but they're just, they have really cool properties that we're going to talk about. Maybe you don't understand this when you're just looking at a gemstone, <laughs> but when you understand how cool zircons are after you listen to this podcast, um, you might want a zircon more than a diamond in your next ring. Okay. Yeah. So it is significantly softer. So a seven and a half on the most hardness scale means that it would scratch quartz, but it wouldn't scratch topaz. Yes. Uh, and it could be scratched by topaz corundum yes. or diamond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty high up there. It's not yeah. bad. I mean, unless you're going to smash your diamond or your corundum up against your zircon ring. Like, my, mine's kept in shape for a good 10 years, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it is funny what geologists like as jewelry uh, because, <laughs> as it turns out, most of the time people want, oh, the jeweler says this is a, this is a very clear, uh, you know, brilliant cut. And the geologist says, that's great. I want the ones with little pieces of mantle in it. Oh, it's so true. (laughs) 
it's and the so jewelers like, well those are those are you know we were going to grind those up for drill bit coatings exactly uh, like oh you don't want those inclusions is what we'd call them but inclusions are kind of cool because it says something more about the rock right a, a clear gemstone is actually kind of boring but if you get some quartz with some rutile in it or some other cool inclusions like that topaz can have a lot of really cool inclusions um yeah we talk about this a lot when we're talking to my grad student who cuts these gemstones and yeah we're like oh but we like those (laughs) but those aren't the ones that he sells because everybody wants clear ones exactly i mean you can make nice clear gemstones in a lab uh but it takes something a little bit more to make something with impurities <laughs> so true um but i mean those impurities besides like geologists thinking they're cool um is kind of what gives zircon some of its great properties because zircon it turns out is a really great geochronograph so that's a five dollar word for a way to tell how old it is <laughs> It is. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about its geochronologic properties later, but first we need to talk about where zircons come from in the first place. So these aren't the zircons that are on your ring. These are tiny little zircons. <laughs> and they form where lots of minerals form first, which is in igneous and metamorphic rocks. So they're either freezing from a melt or they're forming through the cool part of metamorphic rocks called atomic diffusivity and during ultra high temperature and ultra high pressure metamorphism. Right, so freezing from melt is always a weird word for me because <laughs> you're still dealing with liquid rock. Uh, it's it's totally why I say it. I love it every time because it just it it makes you it like snaps to your thermodynamical part of your brain that some of us who had the trauma of taking thermo have, right? And you're like, yes, it is freezing from a melt, even though that's not what you want to say. Well, if you want to think of it from a meteorology standpoint, it's relatively close to condensation here. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> so Except it's right in zircons. <laughs> you're forming little clouds of zircon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yep. then th- this diffusivity part, though, is fascinating. So when you have uh, hot minerals that are under intense pressure, you can actually coax the atoms to moving to areas of lower concentration of that atom, and they try to spread out equally. They generally never get there. It's just my uh, favorite part of metamorphism because this is so mind-blowing to me. Like, you don't actually melt the rocks in metamorphism or else then you're making igneous rocks, but you can make right. an entirely different suite of minerals than you started with just by squeezing them and heating them just hot enough that their atoms can move around. That's crazy. But it's not like you, you know, take something, you squeeze it, and you heat it. You set your timer for twenty minutes. You pull out the one you prepared earlier. This something has to happen <laughs> over geologic time because you're talking about atoms moving through atomic structures. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And then coming together and re—well, it's not recrystallizing because they're moving through. You know, some of them can take on different crystal forms. Um, this is the coolest part of metamorphism. I absolutely agree. We talked about this on our metamorphic show. Um, so if you wanted to hear more about us geeking out about atomic diffusivity, you can always listen to that. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but one of the interesting things about zircons is they're difficult to make, but that also means that they're difficult to get rid of. Right. Um, and this is probably one of the best reasons that we use zircons for this is they don't I'm not going to say they're chemically inert because they do interact with stuff, 
but they don't chemically interact with many things, and therefore they can stick around for a really long time, either in these igneous and metamorphic rocks in which they were first made, or after those igneous and metamorphic rocks get weathered, the zircons are still left, and then so you get what we call detrital zircons, or zircons that get deposited into sedimentary rocks. Right, and as these zircons go through their life, they might change environments, uh, the melt that they came out of might change its composition over time because these are happening on long time scales. And you actually get sort of a, a hailstone looking structure, right? You get these yeah. zones of different chemicals, uh, different chemical composition. So different concentrations of different isotopes that accumulate around the zircon and uh, gives you this nice little ring structure. Exactly right. <laughs> Hailstone. I love it. Um, <laughs> I can tell you've gone to the meteorology dark side, John. <laughs> um, so this is the black and white that John was talking about earlier. And we've got a link here in the show notes. So you can see one of these SEM pictures of zircon zonation. And it is. It's just like an onion. These zircons get these different layers or like a jawbreaker, really, less like an onion and more like a jawbreaker. Um, and these chemically and isotopically distinct layers can tell you so much about when that zircon grew and the events that happened to it throughout its little lifetime because we're good enough that we can actually sample in individual zircon zones and we can take chemical composition and we can look at radioisotopes, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And it takes a long time for some of those zones to form. So you can track this one tiny crystal through sometimes millions of years of geologic history by looking at the different zones. Right. And though we said it's like a hailstone in its structure, uh, I want to emphasize that you were talking about being able to sample the individual zones. That's amazing because most of these things you are looking at in a scanning electron microscope. They're tiny. Yes. Yeah. So micron type stuff across. And you've got to like burn a hole in them with a laser, which I knew you would love because lasers, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> lasers and, and high speed cameras. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and you wouldn't need a high speed camera for this because I think it actually takes quite a while. So that would be terribly boring to, <laughs> to watch that <laughs> in right. that kind of slow-mo. <laughs> um, but... I guess I can't underemphasize how cool this is to have a mineral that's so stable that you can look at the core of that little tiny crystal and you can say that formed this many millions or in Zircon's case, billion years ago. And then the magma changed chemically in this way. And we could tell that because this zone has, you know, these additional elements floating around in it. And that happened 10 million years after the core that Zircon started growing. That's awesome. Well, and then it got erupted and it got deposited in a sedimentary rock later in life there where you. because of the chemical makeup of its surroundings, different cations started diffusing from the outside in and you created a zone that way. Exactly right. Which is super cool. <laughs> Now, I was always a little bit skeptical about using zircons for this. And it turns out that, you know, if you're looking at an igneous rock and a zircon that's in an igneous rock, that's, th those are really, you know, that, that zircon formed right there. It gets a little muddier, pun intended, when you start looking <laughs> at <laughs> detrital zircons um, and trying to figure out 
the sedimentary history that these little zircons went through after they were erupted or weathered out of their igneous or metamorphic parents. So that does get a little more wishy-washy than actually using zircons to come up with an absolute age date, which they're really good at. Right. And so some of the things that a geologist might be trying to learn from zircons are things like, when did this orogeny that I'm studying happen based on these things? Or when was this sedimentary package buried? Right, exactly. Because so these zircons are useful for understanding those relative timing of events, right? So if you have, you know, zircons of a certain age in this package and zircons of a certain age in another package, you know when these sedimentary events would happen relative to each other. But you can actually determine absolute ages of both the zircon formation and maybe even subsequent events, which is something that's kind of hard to do in geology. It's pretty easy as for us to figure out relative timing of events, but absolute ages, that's a harder nut to crack when it comes to uh, geologic processes for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. And so if you're trying to get some of these geochronographs out of a zircon, one of the things that you're going to start looking at is radioactive elements. Right. Um, so luckily, Zircon contains uranium. It actually has thorium too, but I'm going to talk about uranium. Uh, and both of those are, of course, radioactive. So this is one of those contaminants in the zircon, but it turns out it's a really good thing. Um, so you can use lots of different radioactive elements to determine the age of something. People are generally always say carbon-14 dating, right? That's something that I don't, I don't know why everyone knows about carbon-14 dating. But everybody it's does. It's the History Channel and uh, the, you know, all the, the shows about the pyramids. Ah, uh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> well, we kind of laugh at carbon-14 dating in most of geology because <laughs> the, the half-life is ridiculously short, right? And so you can't date anything older than, say, 70,000 years, which, geologically speaking, is, you know, barely a zygote, right? So... <laughs> yeah, it's, you know... Uh, than the upper couple meters. Yeah, yeah, if that. <laughs> um, so carbon-14, which is funny because in class I actually asked this. I said, how do we figure out the age of stuff? And five people, and this is an intro class, so it's fine. But five people were like, carbon-14. No. <laughs> but but you're on the right track, okay, radioactivity. So uranium is one of these really great things to look at um, because uranium-238's half-life is 4.5 billion years. <laughs> Yeah, so that gives you quite a bit of Because after right. seven half-lives, things get kind of difficult, right? But, right. <laughs> uh, after seven half-lives, we're not worried about age of things on Earth. Yeah, no, not, not even a little bit. Not even zircons make it that far. <laughs> um, so <laughs> right. uranium decays to lead, right? And you can look at those ratios to determine how old something is. That's all radiometric dating is um and the good thing is is that zircons don't really like lead right and so they don't generally take lead into their crystalline structure so therefore if there's lead present in these zircon crystals we can assume that all of it is from decay of uranium right i mean lead's a pretty big atom to yeah. shove in there without <laughs> provocation. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I know that there's a lot, and I, I, 
when I was looking up stuff, I glanced across this and I immediately retreated because I like physics, I don't like chemistry, and they started talking about clumped isotopes. And I know there's all kinds of crazy things about clumped isotopes. So we should have someone else that does like that stuff talk about it than us. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've dealt with this. Um, our, our crazy geochemist at our school, if you say clumped isotopes, he just throws up his hands and... <laughs> then mutters to himself all the time. So, <laughs> Yeah, I vaguely remember it from some nuclear engineering courses I took a while back and uh, some of the geochemistry stuff, but it's been a long time since I've heard those words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we'll get an expert to talk to you guys about this. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned earlier that you can do all of this, this dating and these analyses on the zones by using a technique called laser ablation, which is super amazing. Right. Um, have you, have you had any experience with this? I, I have not. I've just looked at the output of this data. I have not actually been in charge of laser ablation techniques. I haven't either. Um, we had a material science lab when I was at Penn State that did a lot of this kind of thing. And some of it they would do not for geology, but for manufacturing various uh, electronics parts and that kind of thing that, you know, they were etching things on the uh, silicon wafers. Mm, okay. Uh, so I've seen the results of it when I took some of their classes, and it was really neat. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but I've never actually been in charge of running the machine. From what I hear, like you mentioned, it's a pretty slow process. Exactly. And, you know, if you're looking at sedimentary rocks in particular, because zircons are hard to weather, but they're not exactly super abundant. And so <laughs> sometimes you have to have a lot of these guys because you want to have a really robust, statistically robust, um, you representation of your rock. Okay. So if you're doing igneous zircons, they're in place, you get them out of the air and then you can do this laser ablation. You can say this igneous rock is this age because that zircon I just took out of it, you know, it was in that rock, you know, says, says so. And that's great. Um, but these detrital zircons that are in sedimentary rocks, it's just so much harder because so much stuff has happened to those rocks for them to wind up, or happen to those zircons for them to wind up in a sedimentary rock. And so you have to laser ablate a bunch of these, and you have to have a lot of rock in which to find all these little detrital zircons. Yeah, and sometimes after all of that work, your data comes back and it just looks like random scatter. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to talk about that. We're only going to talk about good data. Isn't that what we do as scientists? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what gets published generally. Yeah, but it that's is, for sure. You know, it's the, the case with things like paleomagnetics as well, mm -hmm. where sometimes the rock has such a complicated and convoluted history, you just can't get meaningful signal. You need a lot of rock to come up with a lot of zircons. And I've helped my friends collect for detrital zircon analysis. And man, we hauled kilos of rocks out of the field. It was ridiculous. And you can't just stick that rock in there. You have to break that entire rock down. <laughs> and then you get to the airport and they say, we're going to need to open your bag. <laughs> exactly. Every single time. And you know what I've, what I've noticed about traveling, John? Um, <laughs> is that if I have a rock that is vaguely spherical, I always get stopped. If I have rocks that are not spherically shaped, not always get stopped. Every time I have a spherically shaped rock, I get stopped. It happened this last time that I was in the airport. 
I know that was an aside, but it was really funny. So <laughs> you just gotta put a little fuse on the top. Exactly. Right? That's exactly it. <laughs> It'll look yeah. just like the ones in Mario Kart. <laughs> Can't you tell a bomb when you know it when you see it? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, and sometimes you know I've had the experience of going through airports with with rocks, and it's not we're suspicious of you. It is why are you carrying yes. rock on the airplane? <laughs> So in Inverness, Scotland, which the airport is like four gates, I think, they called me over the loudspeaker and they had pulled my luggage. And so I walked up and I said, yes, I'm Shannon. And they said, look at this. And they opened my luggage and there's a rock hammer on top. And then there's this huge (laughs) spherical rock (laughs) that I'd picked up. And it had all these really cool... um, like rip up clasps so these clasps from like an ancient storm and it was a really old rock so it had been rounded like on the beach and so they said is that a dinosaur egg (laughs) 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 and i said no it's not and i explained it to him and one of the guys turns to the other dude and he's like i told you it wasn't an egg (laughs) (laughs) so that was spectacular Yeah, that's that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't beat it. It was it was really great. Um, what were we talking about again? <laughs> okay, so detrital zircons. Oh yeah. Sometimes you don't get a lot of signal from them because the rock is complicated and you need a lot of material. Uh, but sometimes you can at least constrain by well, the oldest zircon was this and the youngest zircon was this, so I know the rock has to be. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Younger than this, but older than this. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so that is sort of a, I think even a geologist would at some point call that a hand-wavy Ex- dating argument. Exactly. Um, zircons in detrital sedimentary rocks are good for showing provenance usually, even if you can't get these absolute age dates. Um, so if you have a less complicated sedimentary rock, you know, there are lots of different terrains. And I'm talking about geologic terrains, not like mountainous terrains. So lots of different suites of rocks that are very particular to a place. Okay. And this is why I was talking about them in class, because we were talking about the history of the earth and the first rocks that we had on earth. Right. And so these cratons or these little baby continents that we had four billion years ago, you know, have lots of zircons in them. They have very specific ones. And so if you weather those and then you see those in your sedimentary rock, you at least know where your sediments came from. And it's never that simple, but it's something like that. (laughs) And so in geology, we call that provenance. So the provenance of your sedimentary rock can be told by the zircons, even if the ages don't really help you out that much. Right. And so there are zircon dates that have let us confirm where some of the oldest rocks that we know of still in existence are, which if you think about how old (laughs) some of these are, you know, in the billions of years that this, this piece of material has existed, it's really pretty amazing. Right. So when we say something's, you know, isotopically stable or geologically stable, you think, okay, that could hang around, you know, 10 million years, 100 million years. But these zircons can hang around for billions of years. And that's exactly it. And why we were talking about them in class, because this is how we tell how old the oldest rocks on earth are, because uranium lead dating 
is very robust, and it's actually highly accurate, right? The errors on uranium lead determinations are quite low. I read like 0.1 to 2% or something like that, um, which is not true for all dating methods, but uranium lead's the way to go. And you can find these zircons in some of these oldest rocks on Earth, which are on these cratons, which are the first continents. Right. And so, I mean, you can get some pretty old rock right there in Oklahoma by going down to the Tishomingo Granite. Yeah, we sure can. That's uh, 2 billion years old, something like that, I think. Yeah, it's somewhere in that range. I've got a big chunk of it. And uh, I have been told that because of the uranium content uh, that's relatively concentrated in this, it's pretty easily detectable with a Geiger counter, but not dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Um, we did that in lab and all of us went, oh, gosh, we've been touching that rock. And, you know, then the professor laughed and said, it's not really, <laughs> it's not as bad as you think. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is. Um Two billion years, that's pretty good. But even better are these old zircons that we found in Western Australia, which seems to be the hotbed for everything really old, geologically speaking, because some of the first life and the oldest rocks have been found there too. And so these zircons in the Jack Hills region and have been found in sedimentary rocks there too and some igneous rocks. They're as old as 4.4 billion years old. Which is crazy. The oldest thing we knew of before these was 3.8. And the difference between 3.8 and 4.4 may seem small. But remember, this is billion years. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, that's like most of the geologic timescale that we deal with is that difference there in that 3.8 to 4.4 billion years. And so it's kind of mind-blowing to think that. And why we would be so surprised by this because we know earth is around 4.6 billion years old so why would we be surprised well it has to do with the thermodynamics of the early earth because we were thrown off you know from the sun all these elements we started to coagulate and we were really hot and the question still which i think is so great this is one of those sort of fundamentals of geology that hasn't been solved, which makes geology really exciting to me, is that we don't know how long Earth was hot. Right. So we know at some point, at least by 4.4 billion years, we had to be cool enough to get some of these rocks, uh, igneous rocks that had zircons in them. And then they had to survive what was likely yeah. still a very hot and dynamic earth. Right. And a lot of that <laughs> dynamic part <laughs> comes in the form of um, the early bombardment, which is a time period where we still had a lot of junk floating around. So there's still a lot of space junk, lots of asteroids, and lots of comets. But we still were able to find these rocks and those little rocks were able to survive um, all that bombardment, which added a whole bunch more heat to the already chaotic system. Um, and also within this region, and this is pretty recent stuff, actually, uh, 2016, I think was the study that I read, that they found zircons in sedimentary rocks that were 4.04 billion years old. And this has some implications beyond, um, wow, rocks could survive that long, but to make sedimentary rocks... You have to weather them, and in order to weather them, you have to actually have weather. Right, so this means that we had to have a water cycle in place, or some very rudimentary form of it. Right, exactly, and so that um, is really adding to a big chunk of knowledge that we didn't know about early Earth, which was 
when did we have rocks at all? And then when did all this water vapor that came from all these comics that were hitting us and also from the volcanoes that were happening, when did all this water vapor get enough concentration in the atmosphere to actually start raining out and we started to create our oceans? And before, it was a really arm-wavy thing of, ah, you know, 3.8-ish, 3.5-ish, something like that, because that's how old the oldest life was that we had found. And so 4.04 billion years, that's... Like I said, like you said, we're talking about billion years here. That's a significant chunk of time that we had a hydrologic cycle in place. And so, therefore, there's probably a lot of life older than that 3.8 billion years that we had seen out there somewhere. Right. And I just want to emphasize again that when we're talking about, you know, 3.8, 3.5, whatever, your lifespan is somewhere out in the, uh, let's see, what would that be? Uh, seventh or eighth digit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that is the sort of the 10,000 foot view of zircons Mm -hmm. without going too much into exactly how the, the geochronology, the dating process works, which I think would be a fun thing to talk about at some point is how do we actually measure the ratio of these isotopes? How do we do that? Right, right. I absolutely think so because that's, you know, it's lasers, that's cool. And there's a lot of, um, you know, you got mass spectrometers and all this equipment that you use to actually count these things. And so this would be a really cool, the sample prep is, I think the sample prep is very interesting too. (laughs) Um, So we should get somebody on to talk about that. So if anybody knows anybody, um, I know there's a big lab in Arizona and that's where most people take um, their zircons, George Garrell's lab, um, to get analyzed. So that would be a really cool thing to talk about too. But first we had to understand zircons. So thanks Steve for suggesting that for us. Yeah, and continuing on the listener-themed show here, we have another listener, Fun Paper Friday. Man, I love it. We've had, we haven't had to do any Fun Paper Friday work in quite some time. I'm going to forget how to even look stuff up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this was sent in by listener Jonathan on Twitter, and he said, hey, I think you guys will get a kick out of this. And we sure did because... Uh, somebody that we've talked about needing to be a guest on the show for a long time. Dr. Ralph Lorenz is the first author on this paper, so we know it's going to involve planetary things, crazy instrumentation, (laughs) and some really sort of bizarre setup that turns out to be really elegant. (laughs) Right, yes, and that's exactly what it is. Um, So this paper is Dragonfly, a rotocraft lander concept for scientific exploration at Titan. And... There's a thousand people on this, like there are on every um, science paper or space paper, right? Um, <laughs> but I'm super excited about this because I love to talk about Titan, um, mostly because Titan is a really cool Earth analog that's way out there, and it has some awesome stuff happening to it. And I love this little instrumentation thing to help us explore Titan. It seems pretty neat. Right. So Titan is one of Saturn's moons. It's an icy moon. Uh, And it's a very active moon. Uh, And it also, you know, you said it's an Earth analog. Well, it has a pretty darn thick atmosphere, which opens up some 
cool ways that we could move a spacecraft around it other than driving. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I like to joke in class because, you know, I teach at the University of Oklahoma. We have a lot of petroleum people coming through. I was also a petroleum geologist for a while, so I get to say this. Um, I like to joke that Titan's the only place that an engineer could actually find oil by themselves <laughs> because <laughs> because there are lakes of it hanging out on the surface. <laughs> but that's exactly it. Titan's got this thick atmosphere which, like John just said, is a cool way to talk about getting around, but it's also kind of sucky for instrumentation because you can't see through this big haze, which is hydrocarbon haze. And Titan actually has a hydrocarbon cycle, much like our hydrologic cycle, which is crazy. Right, and there are also significant amounts of nitrogen involved because it's cold. Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, they have methane rivers, and there are dunes on Titan. I know we've done a couple of fun papers about the dunes on Titan and the winds that actually sculpt the dunes because you can tell a lot about the surface winds based on the dune orientation and the dune shape, right? But these dunes are not sand dunes. They're... Well, what we think they are is that they are these hydrocarbon dunes. They're little tiny solids of hydrocarbon. <laughs> yeah, so sort of think like a blowing coal heap. Yeah, uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> Next to the lovely methane river. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, so uh, no matches. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only there were oxygen. Exactly. Um, so thank God there's not. Um, but so this is a really cool concept about how to get around on Titan. And I knew you'd like it because, you know, drones, right? Because um, <laughs> there's a lot of problems with actually landing something on Titan, right? Because... Number one, this haze business, and a lot of this direct-to-earth communication, that's actually kind of a problem, too. Well, and how do you get around on something that has a very active surface? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like Mars, where, yeah, you have blowing dust, but you're not dealing with flowing fluids, at least not in significant quantity. Uh, so you could drive around, but... Well, driving around is difficult, especially when there's a long communications delay. You know, we're talking many, many, many minutes from when you say go forward one foot to when it receives it and goes forward one foot and then sends a picture back. Right, exactly. And you don't want to drive into a methane lake. Right. That would be a really bad day. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, sure would. <laughs> so what you uh, could do potentially is, yeah, slap eight rotors on this thing and... You charge up, so they propose having a radioisotope thermal generator, mm -hmm. which is uh, you've got a radioactive source that decays, produces heat, and then through a bunch of thermocouples hooked together, basically, you get a really low current power source. Uh, so they have this trickle charging the batteries and running the thing, doing scientific measurements while it's sitting in one location. Once your battery gets charged up enough and you've done your measurements, you can fire up the rotors and take a short hop to somewhere else that looks interesting and do the same thing. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> I will say, so, you know, they talk also about how you've got to land this thing, right? And so these, like, parachute landers with the airbags, that's been super successful. And there's a really great sentence in this paper that I don't want us to skip over. Um, so after the lander's parachute descent and landing on Pathfinder-like airbags, okay, 
Great. Petals will unfold and science would begin. (laughs) 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 Replete with cameras, a chemical analysis suite, a seismometer, and a meteorology package. (laughs) So this dragonfly basically hits everything we love, right? It doesn't have lasers, but... Um, it's, it's pretty great. Um, so they also say that helicopters or a helicopter type vehicle has been proposed, uh, almost 20 years ago, but helicopters are actually quite complex compared to these, you know, well, it's not a quadcopter. It's got eight rotors, right? So it's kind of a different thing. It's in a quadcopter configuration. There's one rotor Mm -hmm. above and below the boom. Uh, so it, it is an octocopter, but sort of a quad. Uh, but one thing is this, we're not talking about something the size of DJI Phantom. We're Correct. talking about something that's a little, little over three meters across and 420 kilograms. Yeah. So, I mean, that's almost half a ton. Yeah. So <laughs> this bad know, boy think, is pretty big. flying Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah. Not a dragonfly. Not at all. <laughs> and then the, the eight, from what I understand, um, you know, it's an octo basically for redundancy, right? So if you lost a rotor, you could keep going. Whereas if you had a quadcopter, you couldn't. But the quad configuration is still the way to go. Right. And what's amazing to me is, so they're going to be trickle charging the battery for a while. They have a chart in here of the power draw versus the airspeed. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at a net draw of... At the lowest airspeeds, four kilowatts, and at twenty meters a second, about eight kilowatts. Okay, that's a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's half a ton, man. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, though you're trickle charging, and you think, oh, an RTG for the power source, you know, that's cute. That's what we have on Voyager, and uh, <laughs> no, we're still talking significant currents here, and. But it's one of the problems with RTGs is the actual radioisotope we use for them is becoming a bit short supplied. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But the nice thing about them is, barring any serious mechanical or electronic failure, it's going to run for decades and decades. So this thing might have to sit in one spot for a long time to charge, but it might be hopping around for 40 years. So, you know, it could have a lot of downtime. Because a day on Titan is about 16 Earth days, okay? And so, you know, during Titan nighttime, if you don't want to do anything, it could just sit there and charge, which they've got this graph showing, you know, when it's charging. And then during the day, it can see Earth and throw some stuff back to it, all its sciencey things, which is basically what this graph says, science stuff. <laughs> Right. And so <laughs> it does its science stuff uh, <laughs> during the daytime, uh, science activities. <laughs> and then it can sit there and get its charge from that trickle charge. And it says it's got enough juice for occasional nighttime science activities. <laughs> right. And, you know, they have a chart in here. If they thought about the flight profile this time, they're thinking about flying about 500 meters above the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they say there's also this little shuffle routine where you could just sort of scooch along a couple meters. Uh, but if you're going to go over unknown terrain in space in an autonomous mode, you want to make sure you have lots of time to recover and avoid things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and they also want to get really high up in the atmosphere to do some boundary layer studies because when they've sent probes down, 
there's some weird things happening in the boundary layer. We actually talked about the winds in the boundary layer on Titan and how they affect dune migration and dune shape too. And so, you know, they want to get up, you know, really high in there so they can characterize this boundary layer. Um, and I thought it was really cool too, because they talked about <laughs> that whole, you want to have enough time so you don't kill your little lander. And they're compare Titan's dunes to the dunes in the Namib Sand Sea in Southern Africa in Namibia, because the dunes there have similar morphology and spacing. They're really far apart, like three to four kilometers, and they're really low angle too. Right. So, I mean, in terms of a mission concept, I thought this was a really elegant plan and I kind of hope it happens. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's actually said at the end of 2017 that it was that it was being chosen or that was the time to choose this stuff, which I haven't heard of that being done yet. I don't know if it is done yet. So, yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah, um, I, I'm guessing probably not is what I'm guessing, because it says late 2017 for the phase A study um, of it. So we'll see. But they say, you know, even if that. Even if it doesn't get selected, they think it's a pretty revolutionary paradigm, which I would agree for planetary exploration. Absolutely. And one thing that, so this, this paper was published in the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory Technical Digest, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, Dr. Lorenz works for APL at Johns Hopkins. Uh, one thing I really liked about this was at the end of the paper, even though there are a bunch of authors... It has a picture of every one of them and a couple of paragraphs about them. It does. Um, and when I initially got it, I thought, I don't have time to read all this. But then I see that it's a whole bunch of <laughs> a whole bunch of bios. That's really cool. I, I appreciate that because some of these space things can get so long. They're actually, you know, sort of saying everyone worked on this. Look at what these people are working on. Right. And you know, it always helps to put a face to a name no matter what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you also see some interesting things like, oh, well, this person, uh, one of them worked on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Camera, also called LROC. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them worked on the Cassini mission. Uh, you know, PIs on all kinds of things about Europa. Uh, just a really diverse team. And the team that it takes to get this done, it was just neat to be able to see those uh, contributions all acknowledged. Yep. I like that as well. That's for sure. So this was a really cool paper. Um, yeah, hit instrumentation, hit Titan, hit meteorology, hit geology. That was a win. Oh, absolutely. So thanks for sending that in, Jonathan. Uh, and keep the fun papers flowing. Uh, we would love to hear from you about your plan for Titan exploration or the, the plan to recover hydrocarbons with a straw from these lakes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... If you have any feedback for us, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Yep, you can send your hate mail for my engineering jokes to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Make sure and address those to John, though. Uh, also, we're on Twitter, at geo underscore Lehman, at Shannon Doolin, and together we're at don'tpanicgeo. Uh, we're in the Slack chat room and the software underground, the Don't Panic channel. And don't forget, we've set up a Patreon account, so if you would like to support our podcast, you can do that, um, patreon.com slash don't panic geo which is linked in the show notes this yes. week i forgot to link it last week uh, there we are though and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science
Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.